Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, in the book titled A Knot of Vipers, author Francois Myriac tells of a married couple who spent the last decades, decades of their marriage together, sleeping down the hall from one another. About 30 years earlier, a rift had opened up over whether the husband had shown enough concern when their five-year-old daughter took ill. So every night, the husband waited for the wife to approach him down the hall, and the wife waited for her husband to approach her, and neither one was willing to take the first step for 30 years. Similarly, author Mary Carr tells of an uncle she had who remained married but didn't speak to his wife for the last 40 years of their marriage after a fight had broken out over how much money she had spent on sugar. Now you might hear these stories and think, these are, this is just ridiculous. Until I ask you, what grudges have you been guilty of nursing in your life? What wrongs from the past are you continuing to cling to? And are there people that you're refusing to forgive? Now what does that even mean? To forgive. And are we actually supposed to forgive transgressions that go far beyond sugar expenses? Like traumatic acts of abuse and betrayal against us or those that we love? Are we even supposed to forgive things like that? Well, let's consider some of those questions this morning as we continue our short series on cultivating Christian virtue by looking at this virtue of forgiveness this morning. We're going to do that by looking at a story that Jesus told about dealing with our debtors, and about the connection between being forgiven and forgiving others. And we find that in Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 35. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, please turn to Matthew's Gospel. We're going to look in Matthew 18. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, uh, you should be able to locate a paperback Bible in one of the seats uh, in front of you. Matthew chapter 18. Again, we're going to begin in verse 23 and read through the end of the chapter. So if you're able, let's stand for the reading of God's word. These are the words of Jesus. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That would be the equivalent of about $6 billion today. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii about $12,000, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The grass withers and the flowers fall. The word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Well, I want to consider four points about forgiveness from this parable with you this morning beginning with what we see at the end of it, and that is the mandate of forgiveness. The mandate of forgiveness. The story of the unmerciful servant ends in verse 34 with these words. We just read them. And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus offers this concluding warning in verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So we are mandated to forgive others who wrong us if we want to enjoy the forgiveness of our Heavenly Father. And you will feel the force of this mandate of forgiveness. At some point in your life, you will feel the force of this mandate. It's unavoidable. It's inevitable. Because you will be wronged and you will be sinned against in your relationships with other people. And when that happens, there are basically three ways that we can respond. You can deny it. Deny that the wrong ever took place. So you can avoid at all costs any kind of conflict and any kind of confrontation. But the problem with this is that wound will fester beneath the surface and never truly heal if we simply deny that it happened. A second option is we can avenge it. Make the person pay. We can get even for the wrong committed against us. Evil for evil and hurt for hurt. But the problem with this approach is summarized well by author Lewis Smedes in his book, The Art of Forgiving. When he writes, getting even is impossible. The victim and the victimizer never weigh the pain on the same scale. One of us is always behind in the exchange of pain. If we have to get even, we are doomed to exchange wound for wound, blood for blood, pain for pain, forever. But there is a third option. We can forgive it. And the Bible mandates that we forgive it. When we're wronged and when we're sinned against, the Bible mandates that we forgive it. Not only in this parable, but elsewhere too. When Jesus is teaching us how to pray as his disciples, right after he teaches us to pray for daily bread, he tells us to pray to our Father to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And perhaps he moves from asking for daily bread to forgiveness because he means to suggest that forgiving will be as daily as eating when we find ourselves living in the midst of people who don't love well, including ourselves. It will be a common occurrence. But then, after teaching on the Lord's Prayer, he immediately circles back and says this about forgiving. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, right after the Lord's Prayer, he says, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father Forgive your trespasses. The mandate of forgiveness is clear. But even if you're convinced that there's a mandate to forgive others, we're still left needing to understand the meaning of forgiveness. What does forgiveness even mean and what should that look like? Well, we actually get a clue in this parable in verse 27 where we read, Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
Forgiveness involves a kind of release. It involves the canceling of a debt. You don't make the debtor pay what is owed. Now, the Greek New Testament word that's used here for forgave him is the Greek word aphiemi. It's pronounced aphiemi. And in many contexts, it simply means to let go. In the context of forgiveness, it means letting go of resentment and bitterness and malice toward the person who wronged us. To forgive means to let go of resentment. And Philip Yancey, the author, reminds us that resentment means literally to feel again. Think of having a sentiment or being sentimental. It kind of refers to this, the feelings that people have. To resent, resentiment. Resentment means to feel again. Resentment clings to the past, relives it over and over, and when we've been wronged, it picks each fresh scab so that the wound never heals. What forgiveness does is it lets go of this clinging to and reliving the past. When we forgive, we let go of that. But it also involves releasing a person from the sentence of suffering, punishment, and penalty from us. Okay? It, it means a releasing of a person from the sentence of suffering, punishment, and penalty from us. We could say this another way. It means letting go of our claim to personal vengeance. It means that we let go of trying to even the score, which is what we have a tendency to want to do. We want people who wrong us to suffer, right? But it's even more than that. We want people who wrong us to suffer and know that they're suffering because of the wrong that they did to us. We want them to know that there's a connection between wronging us and the suffering that they're experiencing. And so we often take that into our own hands. We levy a sentence of punishment and penalty. We may not go out and choke someone like the servant in the parable does, although we might. The form of that punishment or penalty might be physical in nature. But sometimes it's more subtle where we just withdraw from the relationship. We turn a cold shoulder. Or rather than physically attacking, we verbally attack people to tear them down and use our words to wound. And if we don't speak attacking words to the person, we'll speak attacking words about the person by slandering behind their back maliciously or subtly, attempting to diminish their reputation or a whole slew of other instruments we have in our toolbox of revenge. There's all kinds of things that we'll do to make the person suffer punishment and penalty from us. But in forgiving, we put all that away. We put all of those tools and instruments away, and we let that go. But there's actually an additional word in the New Testament Greek that's not found in our text. It's also translated forgiveness. We find it in texts like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, when we're instructed to forgive others. And that Greek word is korizomai, which simply means to bestow favor or to show grace unconditionally to another. To bestow favor. And so we have this additional idea to the virtue of forgiveness from a biblical perspective. And it's not just refraining from revenge. It's actually actively seeking another person's good. It is acting in goodwill toward another person rather than trying to tear that person down, rather than acting toward that person's undoing or ruin. We act in goodwill and we adopt an overall caring disposition in thought, word, 
and deed. A caring disposition in thought, word, and deed. So to quote Lewis Smedes once again from his book, he says, All forgiving hits its stride when a wounded person wishes good things for the person who did bad things to her. And so here's one way, putting all these things together, here's one way we might be able to capture the meaning of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a renouncing of bitterness, resentment, and malice toward the person who wronged us, as well as letting go of our claim to personal vengeance and instead opting for love, care, and goodness over evil, as Romans 12, 21 instructs us. Do not repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. And so there's one way we can understand the meaning of forgiveness. And so you may be convinced of the mandate of forgiveness. And you may understand here the meaning of forgiveness, but let's not think that if we are convinced of that and understand the meaning, that that's going to make forgiveness forgiveness easy. Forgiving others is not easy. It's painfully difficult to forgive. And some of you are probably thinking that right now. This is painful to do. I, I was good if it just meant refraining from revenge. But if you add all that acting and goodwill toward the person who wronged me, there's why I have all the trouble with it. Elizabeth O'Connor bluntly remarks, forgiveness we discover is always harder than the sermons make it out to be. It is hard. But it's even harder when we don't account for the misunderstanding of forgiveness. So let's look at that in the third place the misunderstanding of forgiveness. I'll quote Lewis Smedes one more time, because I think he's right. Can you advance that for me, Dan? It's not working. Thank you. He says, I have discovered that most people who tell me that they cannot forgive a person who wronged them are handicapped by a mistaken understanding of what forgiveness is. So it is as important to understand what forgiveness isn't as it is to understand what forgiveness is. And so I want to mention seven misunderstandings of forgiveness, beginning with forgiveness does not mean a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. So to renounce resentment and bitterness and opt for goodwill and care toward a person does not require you all of a sudden to develop warm, affectionate feelings toward the person who wronged you. It doesn't mean that. Certainly not when the wound is fresh and maybe not ever. Feelings of fondness and a close connectedness of warmth to a person are not definitive indications of whether you have forgiven a person or not. Quite frankly, depending on what you do with them, neither are feelings of anger definitive indications of whether you've forgiven a person or not, depending on what you do with those feelings, because forgiveness isn't a feeling. It doesn't mean a feeling. It doesn't mean that there's not feelings commonly associated with forgiving someone. It doesn't mean that there's feelings associated with not forgiving someone. It just means we can't reduce forgiveness to a feeling or a set of feelings we feel or don't feel. Forgiveness is a choice we make to respond to a person who has wronged us in a particular way. Forgiveness does not mean a feeling. Secondly, forgiveness does not mean denying that there was a wrong done to us. Forgiving doesn't require that you deny a wrong was done to you. Forgiveness looks squarely at the wrong, actually, and it doesn't minimize it. It doesn't reinterpret it as, well, it was just an innocent mistake or wires were crossed. 
No, it acknowledges the sinfulness of the wrong and forgives the wrong by renouncing resentment and bitterness and malice, letting go of our insistence on personal revenge and opting instead for love, care, and goodness. It doesn't mean denying that a wrong was done. Forgiveness applies when a wrong has been done. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, they think that if you ask them to forgive someone who has cheated or bullied them, that you're trying to make out there was no cheating or no bullying. They keep on replying, but I tell you the man broke a most solemn, uh, solemn promise. Exactly. That is precisely what you have to forgive. Now, it may be the truth that what happened was an innocent mistake or a miscommunication. And if that happens, you may have to work through hurt feelings But strictly speaking, you don't have to forgive a person. It was an innocent mistake. It was a miscommunication. We forgive wrongs. We forgive sins against us. We don't deny that those wrongs happened. And we don't deny that they're wrongs. Third, very common, forgiveness does not mean forgetting. First, it's just not what the way our minds were. We can't selectively block out the occurrence of past events. It's not how our minds work. It doesn't mean forgetting. It means responding in a particular way to people who have wronged us. It doesn't require that we forget those things. Fourth, forgiveness does not mean surrendering justice. There's a difference between letting go of vengeance and letting go of justice. Vengeance is a personal retaliation for a personal injury. Justice is a proper proper moral accounting, calling people to a proper moral accounting for their conduct. Those are not the same things. So it's possible to say, I forgive the person who murdered my uncle, and I want that person to spend the rest of his life in jail. Or even, I want that person to receive the death penalty. That's not vengeance. That's justice. And you can say, I forgive my husband, and I'm divorcing him for repeated patterns over several decades of abusing me and my children. That's not vengeance. That's justice in setting limits on the kinds of wrongs you tolerate people to commit against you and commit against people that you love. Now, it's still true that in forgiving you have to release the person from suffering from the sentence of penalty and punishment from your hands, right? whatever form that would take. You have to release them from the slander, from the vicious verbal attacks, whatever form they would take. In forgiveness, you release them from you taking that justice into your own hands and you commit your cause to God's justice who says, don't avenge yourself. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Forgiveness is an act of faith in entrusting justice to the Lord's hands rather than acting as a vigilante to secure that judgment of punishment and penalty with your own hands and your own actions. But forgiveness does not mean surrendering justice. What are we on? Is that five? Forgiveness does not mean trusting. This is so frequently confused. To forgive someone does not mean or require you to trust the person in the future. Forgiveness does not mean we invite 
untrustworthy and ungodly people into our lives to repeatedly wrong us, sin against us, and hurt us. It's not what forgiving is. Forgiveness is primarily concerned with a past transgression that has occurred. Trusting someone is primarily about a person's integrity of character that's required to have a healthy relationship moving forward. And quite frankly, some people don't have the integrity of character in which you can have a healthy relationship with that's built on trust. You can forgive someone and not trust the person. We shouldn't conflate or confuse these two ideas. To support this, we can look at a passage in 2 Timothy that's really easy to read over, but I think it's instructive here. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, chapter 4, verses 14 and 15 of 2 Timothy, and this is what he says. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Apparently, Paul has not forgotten that. He didn't forget. He's done me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He hasn't surrendered justice. He just isn't securing that for himself. He's not acting in personal vengeance. And then listen to what he says to Timothy. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Paul may have forgiven Alexander the coppersmith, but he doesn't trust him here. And he's instructing Timothy, you might not want to trust him either. You can trust someone and still forgive that person and still want the best for that person. Because forgiveness does not mean trusting. Now, of course, trust can be rebuilt. Trust can be rebuilt in a relationship. But it has to be rebuilt by the offender. You hear that? Trust can be rebuilt, but it's the offender's responsibility to rebuild that trust. The offender who broke the trust has to rebuild it, and that can only be done by, by showing integrity and change over time. It takes time to rebuild trust. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who say things like, I don't understand what the problem is. I apologize. She said she forgave me. The things still aren't right. I can tell you what the problem is. She doesn't trust you. And quite frankly, she's not just going to take your word for it that you've changed. You have to demonstrate over time that you're committed to change, to growing in integrity, and showing the fruits of repentance. That's what's required to rebuild trust. Over time, showing the fruits of repentance because forgiveness does not mean trusting, even though that trust can be rebuilt. Closely related to this is forgiveness does not mean reconciling. Forgiveness does not mean reconciling in the relationship. While forgiving someone does not require a person to repent before you forgive them, reconciling with a person does require that the person repent. If you want real reconciliation, that's what it requires. But forgiveness doesn't require someone to repent before you forgive them. Although I know there's different opinions about this. Some will say, because Jesus on one occasion says, if your brother repents, forgive him. So the implication is if he doesn't repent, you don't have to forgive him. But my response to that is, unless you're willing to argue that the meaning of forgiveness that I had up here earlier, show it to you again, unless that meaning of forgiveness is deficient in some way, to where that's actually not capturing the essence of biblical forgiveness, or you're willing to argue that if someone doesn't repent, you are no longer called to let go of resentment 
bitterness and malice toward the person. You don't have to let go of your personal insistence or your insistence on personal vengeance. And you don't have to opt for love, care, and goodness over evil unless the person repents. Unless you're going to argue one of those two things, I'll maintain that forgiveness does not require the person to repent before you forgive them. But I'll also maintain that reconciling with the person does. Reconciling with the person does require repentance. Forgiveness is something that's happening at the level of our hearts. And it must happen at the level of our hearts. That's how Jesus ends the parable. Unless you forgive your brother from your heart. But reconciliation is something that has to happen in a relationship between two people. And again, I can forgive someone that I don't trust. But I can't be reconciled, truly reconciled to someone who's not committed to rebuilding trust through repentance. There has to be repentance there. African leader Desmond Tutu, if you can still see it there at the bottom, I think captures it well when he says, I can forgive someone who stole my pen. I cannot be his friend unless he gives it back. Forgiveness does not mean reconciling. And the last one, forgiveness is not usually an event. It's not usually an event. It's usually a process. It takes time to process resentment and bitterness and malice. It takes time to opt for love and care and goodness over evil. And the deeper the wound, the longer that process generally takes. And we should be very cautious in prescribing for other people how long that process should take. It might take days. It might take weeks. It might take months. It might take years to process that. But where we want to be is to have an open, receptive heart to be engaged in that process over time and to not become hardened. Being open to growing in love and care and goodness over evil in our relationships with those people who have wronged us. To be open to that is a work of the Spirit. But it's usually not a one-time event. We usually have to renounce our resentment and bitterness and opt for love, care, and goodness over evil again and again and again, even when we thought we'd already done that. Because forgiveness isn't usually an event. It's a process. The deeper the wound, the longer that process. So clarity about these things is really important because forgiveness is hard enough without all of these misunderstandings. What was done to you was wrong. And nothing will ever make that right. Your forgiveness is not going to make that right. God doesn't even make that right. God might use that for good in your life, but God doesn't take something that was sinful and make it righteous. And your forgiveness isn't going to do that either. And your forgiveness is not going to balance the pain scales any more than revenge is going to balance those pain scales. Someone is always going to end up with more pain. And what you do in forgiving is you opt to absorb that pain and that cost yourself rather than making the other person pay. That's what you're opting for. That's what the master in the parable does. He loses an enormous amount, $6 billion in today's equivalents in forgiving the servant compared to the 12000 the servant was owed in the parable. It cost him dearly to forgive. But in forgiving, we choose to absorb the cost. And it's usually not a financial cost. It might be sometimes, but it's usually not a financial cost. It's usually an emotional cost. 
that we choose to absorb rather than requiring the wrongdoer to pay. But why would anybody do that? <laughs> why would anybody do something that's so painfully difficult to do? I mean, it said that to err is human, to forgive is divine. That doesn't seem like forgiving is human. It seems like forgiving is crazy to us. So why do we do it? What is the motive of forgiveness? And so that's the last thing to consider. Well, surely one of the motives is that we have no assurance that we are forgiven unless we forgive others. We have no assurance of our own forgiveness without forgiving others. This is what the parable teaches us. But we may wonder, does this turn Christianity into a works-based faith, a works-based system of our salvation? In other words, that we earn our forgiveness by forgiving others. Is that what we're being taught here? The answer to that question is no. Jesus does teach us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, but he doesn't pray, forgive us our debts because we forgive our debtors. We should never understand our forgiveness or the cause of us being forgiven, forgiven as the fact that we have forgiven. I don't know if I made that very clear. Let me, let me try that again. We should never think that the cause of our being forgiven is our forgiving others. The cause of our being forgiven is God's free grace to us in Christ. But while our forgiving others is not a cause of our forgiveness, it is a reflection of personally and truly knowing the forgiving grace of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, we can put it on the flip side. Paul Tripp says it this way. An entrenched refusal to forgive. Now notice that an entrenched refusal. That's different than being open and engaged in the process of forgiving. An entrenched refusal to forgive is a sign that you have not known God's amazing forgiveness yourself. And this is what Jesus reveals in the parable, this very thing. He reveals this, those who know forgiveness show forgiveness. Those who know forgiveness show forgiveness. It doesn't mean it's easy. But the ultimate motive we have for forgiving others is because of God's forgiveness of us in Christ. God is the master forgiver. So when we forgive others, we're imitating our forgiving Savior. And remember that there is no wrong that can be done against us that exceeds the wrong that we've committed against our Creator with our sin and our rebellion. That's the point of the vast difference between the sums in the parable. There's nothing that can be done to us that exceeds what our sins have done to God. And there are some ruthless and brutal things that have been done to some of you. And that's not to minimize that. What it is is to have us come to grips with the reality of our sins before a holy God and what that means. And yet, the master in the parable says to the servant, I forgave you all that debt. And then in verse 33, here it is. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Or to say it another way, and should you not have forgiven others as I have forgiven you? And so the more we grasp how much we've been forgiven, the more power we have to forgive others. Being forgiven empowers forgiving. Being forgiven empowers forgiving. We are able to extend the grace of forgiveness to those who have wronged us because 
God has extended the grace of forgiveness to us through the blood of Jesus. That's how we do that. But we need that grace of forgiveness from our Father because it takes grace to forgive. It's a supernatural thing to forgive others. It's not natural for us to absorb the cost of that debt. As the cross of Jesus irrefutably shows us, forgiveness is costly. It doesn't happen without suffering and pain. It's costly. So why do it? I think C.S. Lewis captures it well. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are struck by the reality of your forgiveness of us. And Lord, we're also challenged that in receiving that forgiveness, you call us to be a forgiving people. And Lord, we confess to you that that's hard. It's hard for us to do that. Would you give us grace? And would you give us humility to embrace this mandate? Would you give us grace to understand the meaning? Would you give us insight to have clarity about misunderstandings, about what you're not calling us to do? And would you give us the proper motive in Christ Jesus to extend forgiveness to those who have wronged us? We pray for your grace in Christ's name.